Next week, I'm going to preach a standalone message. It's not part of a series at all. Uh, but if you've been wanting to invite someone to church, I think that it would be a good Sunday to do that. I'm going to take a, a, a peek at how God brings kind of healing to the brokenness in our lives so that we can share our story. Uh, all of us kind of have that experience in life. And, and there's a, God has a, a purpose for that. And we're going to take a, a journey down that. I'm pretty excited to share that word. So uh, if, if you've been wanting to invite somebody to the church, I think it would be a good message for them to hear. Uh, this morning, we're finishing the series on the book of Haggai. And just to set the stage again, the Jewish people are, are back from captivity. They've been in captivity for 50 years, and now they are back in the land of Israel. Uh, they were in captivity because God was punishing them because they were worshiping idols, they weren't worshiping God exclusively, and their sin had gotten so bad that God allowed the Babylonians to come destroy the temple, uh, take the people away into captivity. And when they were finally allowed to come back, they started to rebuild the temple, which is where their national identity, their relationship with God, everything was centered around. But at the first point of resistance, uh, they stopped. And it sat unfinished for 14 years. And God raises up a prophet and says, listen, your hearts aren't, aren't right. You haven't finished uh, my temple, which is how I relate to you and how you are identify as my people. So get your priorities straight and finish my house. Even though they were back in the Holy Land, it doesn't mean that they were holy. And it doesn't mean, even though they were back, that things were going great. And there was a verse in the first message that I read. I want to reread it. And it kind of gives you a sense of where the people were at in this frustrating cycle. It says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. That doesn't sound very fulfilling. <laughs> that doesn't sound like they were doing that great. Uh, it, it, it's like they were taking one step forward and two steps back with life. And if you've ever felt that way in your life, like you just can't get ahead. It is a frustrating place to be. At some point, I wonder if the people of God started to ask God a series of questions. Because they were back in the Holy Land, in a sense, everything should be okay now. Everything should be going well for them. But they were still experiencing this frustrating cycle, this almost like this curse on their life. As you read the book of Haggai, you, you kind of get the sense, even once they're home in Israel, even once they're building the temple again, that their hearts still aren't right with God. And because their heart isn't right with God, they're still, they're still caught in this cycle of planting but not harvesting what they should, drinking but not being satisfied. There's this discontent. Things haven't changed, even though they're back. Now, again, I, no matter who you are, when you're putting forth effort, 
whether your heart's in it or not, you still expect to see results. And if you don't see results, it's kind of like being on a diet and not losing any weight, right? I mean, it's just frustrating. And you begin to wonder, what's the point? Now, don't judge me, but I'm going to share with you how I sometimes judge people. Because I see that same kind of attitude with immature believers and people who aren't Christians. I'm putting forth this effort, but what's the point if I'm not seeing results? And in your relationship with God, the best term that I can come up with for this is conditional obedience. It's kind of like, you know, God, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll obey. I'll try not to sin. I'll I'll serve, I'll give. In the case of the Israelites, we'll even work on the temple as long as you're blessing me. And I wonder if that's one of the contributing factors to why the Israelites stopped building the temple. They just, their heart wasn't in it. Two steps forward, five steps back. They just couldn't get ahead. The hand of God was still against them. But when you have conditional obedience, when your heart isn't right, you stop. I'll work, I'll try as long as you're blessing me. And as soon as that blessing isn't detected, well, then I'm going to just quit. When I strike up a conversation with someone like at the gym, at the Y, um, I hardly ever tell them, that I'm a pastor. Because as soon as I tell somebody I'm a pastor, like they treat me like some kind of freak or something. You know, if, if they happen to let a swear word fly, they're like, oh, oh I'm sorry. Um, but at the gym, I, I will often talk about my faith. I'll tell people what God is doing at the church I go to uh, without telling them that I actually pastor here. And, and my Holly, who goes to the Y with me, thinks this is hilarious because she says, what are you gonna do when they come to church and see that you're the pastor. And I said, well, I'll say hi like I do when everybody else comes in the door. But um, occasionally when I invite someone at the gym to church, I get this response and it's kind of odd. They say, I've tried that. Isn't that kind of a, a different way, a different response to being invited to church? I've tried that and I, I think I know what that means. People know that they have problems. People know they have broken relationships. People know that there must be more. There's this struggle to find some peace and rest in their soul. And they try all sorts of things, trying to find that thing that will bring them peace and purpose and meaning. And when they get to the point where they're willing to try God, maybe for the first time, if things don't turn around like that, and for those of us who have walked this journey of faith, we know that God doesn't often make it happen like that. But when it doesn't happen like that, people say, I'm done. Conditional obedience. Hey, I tried. God's not scratching my back. I'm out of here. I tried it. It didn't work. And they walk. And it happens with immature believers as well. And Jesus told a parable about this 
budding faith kind of thing. And the interpretation of the parable is found in Luke's gospel, 11 through 15. I want to read that this morning. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy and when they, when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. If your faith is conditional and you don't expect to experience hardships in life, it's really difficult to persevere if you expect God to act just like that. Conditional obedience can also be, and related to, selective obedience. In other words, you know, I'll obey the commands that I want to, the ones that are easy, the ones that come naturally, and that's kind of where the Israelites have been. Move back to the Holy Land from being a slave in Babylon? Yes. Uh, rebuild our houses? Yes. Uh, put wood accent walls in? They called them paneling. Yes. Rebuild the temple? Uh, can we do that later? Is the foundation and the altar enough? It almost sounds like a conversation that you might have with your kids. Would you go grocery shopping with me? Yes, because I know I'll get a treat. Would you clean your room? Can I do that later? <laughs> if, I, if I spend some time cleaning my room, can I take a break and play Minecraft? No, just go clean your room. But we can all have that kind of a mindset. All things work together for good, the scripture says. Yes, I love that verse. God, give me the good. Work everything out for my benefit. Love your enemies. Uh, no. Tithe. Nice try. Pray for those who persecute you. Just praying they get hit by a bus count. Love your husband, love your wife, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. Um, can we skip the, like, worse, poor, and sickness part, God? <laughs> because I don't like those. Conditional obedience is, I'll obey if you bless me. Selective obedience is, I'll obey if it's comfortable, if it comes easily, and if I really want to. If we don't want to obey particular commands, selective obedience says, I'll just skip that part. And we look at God and we say, forget you. But God doesn't give us opinions to consider. He gives us commands to obey. There is this corruptive power of sin, this disobedience. And Haggai chapter two shows that People have fallen in, in the land of Israel with the temple in their own houses. They've fallen victim to its corruptive power. And Haggai asks the priest a couple questions. And these are some 
weird questions, and I'll kind of give you the interpretation. The first one that Haggai was told to ask the priest is in Haggai 2.12. And the question is this. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and the fold touches some bread or stew, some wine or olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? And the priest answered, no. In other words, if you have something clean that touches something else, that something else doesn't become clean or holy. But the reverse is different. There's another question, Haggai 2.13. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of those things, like the stew or the olive oil or some kind of food, touches one of those things, does it become defiled? And the priest replied, yes, it becomes defiled. In other words, if you wash your hands and they're clean and then you touch a dirty diaper, your hands are now dirty. Uh, It would be nice if you could touch a dirty diaper and it would be clean, but God says it doesn't work that way. The reverse is actually true. If you take a dirty diaper, Everything that dirty diaper touches is now dirty. Get the bleach out. It is now gross. Because sin is like a dirty diaper. It has that corruptive, disgusting, smelly power in it. It spreads. God drops the hammer on the Israelites in verse 14. And he says this. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people. Notice God still isn't referring to them as my people. With this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer is defiled. They've sinned and everything they touch becomes unholy. They're frustrated, one step forward, two steps back, because the sin, the the root of the problem is in their heart. That's why they couldn't get ahead. This is a difficult word, but we find this principle even in the New Testament. Look at Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Why leave your, why leave your offering? And did, because something's wrong with the heart, and God wants the heart relationship fixed first. It doesn't matter what you offer to God. If the heart is wrong, everything else becomes corruptive. If, if you have kids, you've, you've seen this dynamic in your own home. If you tell one of your kids to apologize to the other kid for doing something wrong, what's that first apology like? I'm sorry, I hurt your feelings, you big baby. And as a parent, does that count? No, it does not count. So we say, tell your sister or tell your brother again that you're sorry. And the second one's usually a little bit better, right? It's like, I'm sorry. Well, it's like, okay, almost. (laughs) You're you're not quite there. You hurt them. What you did was wrong. Tell them you're sorry and give them a hug. I'm sorry I hurt you. The hug and 
I know this doesn't happen at your house. This only happens at the preacher's house. But the point is, attitude matters to God. And if your heart and your relationship with him is corrupted, everything you do is corrupted. And God is looking to fix our heart so that we don't have selective or conditional obedience, but that our obedience flows out of our desire to please him. Haggai 2, 15 through 17 says this. Now give careful thought to this from this day forward. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. In other words, this is before you even started, this was your problem. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there was only 10. That's probably measures of grain. When anyone went to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there was only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the, the Lord. This is another like really difficult picture of God. Haggai says, listen, the reason you, you feel like God is against you is because he is. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> I struck, God says, all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. But God's not just out to get them. He's not out to punish them. He's out to bring them back. Verse 17 helps us see that. The last part of it says, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He wasn't just torturing his people that he was at the time calling those people. He was trying to restore them to himself. You see, sometimes God will allow you to go through hardship to change your heart. And sometimes that hardship may even come from God's own hand. But he's not against us. He's against a rebellion against him. Our God is for us. God might not answer the prayer of your heart until he changes you. Now, I want to be I want to be careful at this point because I'm like on rocky theological ground. Uh, I don't want anyone going home thinking, God is just out to get me. <laughs> like he's torturing me. I knew it was all my fault. Uh, he's punishing me and, and it's me. Um, there are so many reasons why we experience suffering in the world. We live in a fallen world and bad things just happen. Jesus promised it. In this world, you will have trouble. That's not connected to you at all. The same is true because other people sin. And if other people sin, sometimes you are a casualty. So it's not your fault. It's because somebody else sinned. And then we live in a world where our battle is not against flesh and blood, but there is an actual spiritual force, the enemy, who is against us. And scripture says he roars around and roams like a, a lion, which is just a cat. And his aim is to destroy us. It's what he does. So we suffer because there's this big cat out to get us. If you're new here, I, I'm not really a big fan of cats. But God also, at times, when we are wandering from his will, 
will allow or even put his hand against us to win us back. The beauty of this story is that the people of Israel, their hearts changed. And as their hearts change, God gives them a promise about the temple that they're building, rebuilding. And he says that the glory of the temple they're currently building will be greater than Solomon's temple. Not because it's more elaborate, not because there's more gold in it, but because one day the feet of the Savior will walk in it. And God's salvation plan for the world will come to pass through the temple and the ministry that he will be seen there. And when Jesus came, God did a miracle that was never performed before. For the first time in history, holiness spread. Instead of sin, holiness, righteousness spread. Remember when the woman with the issue of blood touched the hem of Jesus' garment? Jesus was not defiled by that. That woman became clean. And our God, our glorious Savior, through faith is able to be touched by all of us. And in faith, his holiness, his righteousness goes to us. You might think, well, Pastor Steve, you do not know what I have done in my lifetime. And I don't need to. Because if you touch Jesus in faith, if you ask him in as your savior, holiness spreads. His holiness spreads to you, to anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. It's the miracle of faith. Let's pray. Jesus, this day we confess that we've had conditional and selective obedience at times. And our rebellion and our sin uh, is great, was great, whatever that might be. And God, if we're people of faith, if we've already experienced your love, we are so thankful that you now look upon us and see your righteousness, that you do not hold our sin against us, that you are for us, and that the work that you hope to accomplish in the Israelites to bring them back, to end their rebellion, has happened in our hearts, and we are so thankful. It's one of the reasons we come just to praise you and thank you for that this day, every Sunday, to worship you. But God, for those of us that don't know that grace, who have never in faith reached out to you, God, we're, we're still stuck in this frustrating place where we feel like we're taking one step forward and two steps back. And it's almost like your hand is against us. And if that describes you, if you've never asked Jesus into your heart, into your life, reached out in faith to him, just ask that you, 
in your own heart, pray the prayer that is on the screen this morning. Father, today, we give you our heart. And we ask for your forgiveness, Jesus, to make us new. Fill us with your spirit so that we can know and follow you and serve you today. God, I give you my life. I am not the Lord. You are the Lord of my life. My life is no longer my own, Jesus. I give it to you. Thank you for new life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.